0: Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings.
1: And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings number 317. Hope everybody had a great day. Two weeks, actually. It took a little break last week as uh, nothing really going on other than spring training camp. And there are some some question marks coming out of spring training camp as we go along. But let's get to uh, some news. According to uh, Keith Hernandez, Rusty Staub is doing a little bit better. Rusty has been in bad health. And apparently he has rallied and is doing much better. So uh, keep the prayers coming in for Rusty Staub because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great Met and um, he's in ill health, as is uh, Ed Cranepool and Buddy Harrelson. So keep them in your prayers as well. Uh, Speaking of health, Mets third baseman David Wright was re-examined Monday by Dr. Robert Watkins in Los Angeles, and he cannot participate in baseball activities for eight weeks due to persistent shoulder and lower back issues, the team said on Tuesday. Wright will remain in L.A. for the duration of spring training, meet the Mets in New York, and is hopeful he will begin his spring training in May, he told reporters on Wednesday. Um, He said he'd love to play again. We'd all love to see him play again, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's time he considers retirement, and we've talked about this in the past on this show. And here's what I would like to see happen. So, you know, and I've mentioned this before, but let's get it. On September 30th, 2018, should be David Wright Day. That is the last game of the season. He should announce his retirement a week or two before whenever. The Mets, if he's able to, you know, uh, get in some sort of shape, they should uh, um, put him on the roster for that game or for September and let him appear in one more game at home for the Mets and then retire. Whether it be as a pinch hitter, which was probably the best way because he can probably get one more swing out of his body at this point of t- in p- of time, and uh, take that swing in a major league game in front of the whole City field I think that would be the class thing to do and uh, you know uh, a fitting way to say goodbye to mr. David Wright because I think his body is just think is just not uh, cooperating and and once that starts to go and look. We've said this numerous times. He's got a family. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your life. Get involved in baseball. Be a coach. Be a manager, maybe. Maybe they can start you in the minor leagues, and uh, you can work your way up and see what happens. There's always something uh, to do. So, uh, you know, give it some thought, Mets. Give it some thought, David Wright, and we'll see what happens. Noah Syndergaard will start for the Mets on opening day against the Cardinals at City Field on March 29th with Jacob DeGrom starting the second game of the season on March 31st. Mickey Calloway, manager of the Mets said just the other day, DeGrom, who made his Grapefruit League debut last Sunday, is slightly behind schedule due to a lower back issue. But, uh, they said he will be ready to go. And, uh, We'll see how he does. Syndergaard made his first opening day start last season against the Braves, and uh, he will be making his first, uh, I think their first home opener. No, that was at home, so I'm sorry. He'll be making uh, his second start against the, uh, who is it? The uh, Cardinals, I said. Okay, Gary, uh, the Grom has never started OB day, but he did start the Mets home opener in 2016. All right. We got a voicemail and, uh, being that we're talking about the pitchers. Now let's, let's hear from our good friend, Sean in Bristol, UK. Sean, take it away.
0: Hi, Gary. It's Sean from Bristol, UK, um, it's been a while since i last got in contact with you hope all's well um heading over to um florida next uh, month for a couple of games one at tampa and uh, one uh, they're going to see the mets down at uh, miami so getting close now uh, that will take my ballpark number up to 27 but um yeah just uh finding in with a question gary the the fifth fifth starter spot um who are you going to go with um they've got a, bit of a predicament here. Um, are they going to go with Wheeler? Are they going to go with Max? Um Lugo? Um, I can see probably Wheeler getting the fifth spot. So I'm not sure how you feel about it, but um, it's a good thing to be in, I guess, from the Mets' point of view. But anyway, I love what you're doing, Gary, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Uh, take care now.
1: Bye. And thanks, Shillan, for the kind words, and to answer your question about the fifth starter, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> personally, I think it's going to be between um, Mats and Wheeler. Uh, one will be the fifth starter, the other will probably stay in extended spring training rather than be sent down. Uh, I don't know if Wheeler has options. Mats does have options, uh, but. Um, to decide who's pitched better is kind of a toss-up at this p- point. Matt struggled the other day, but he came back uh, strong and looked good. Wheeler looked uh, pretty bad the uh, last time he was out there, so it's it's kind of a toss-up at this point. My guess it could be uh, it could be Wheeler getting that uh, last start, the fifth start, uh, only because. I would assume that Vargas would be the fourth pitcher, and I don't want to have two lefties going back to back. So, uh, they could very well give the fifth spot to Wheeler, have Matt stay in extended spring training, and work it out from there. Bring up a a six starter from time to time is Matt's. Move somebody to the bullpen. I don't know if either one of those guys are capable of that. So,. uh, that is a excellent question. Matt, as I said, could be in an, an extended spring training. They could send him down. Uh, Lugo, I guess, will go to AAA and stay stretched out. Perhaps Gizelman, the same thing. But uh, it, it is a nice problem to have. There, there are some other problems that are not so nice to have that the Mets are dealing with. And and that's the first base situation. It's kind of up in the air. We haven't seen Dom Smith at all. And uh, frankly, Gonzalez has looked terrible, especially at the bat. Uh, Flores played today and got a a hit or two. Um, But um, you want Flores as your everyday first baseman. I want him out there against lefties. I'm not so sure I want him out there against righty. So um, they probably should have just re-signed Lucas Duda when they had the chance uh, in all seriousness. I mean, uh, Gonzalez came cheaper, but wow. I mean, who thought we were going to have this problem? We thought it was going to be Dom Smith. Dom Smith comes into camp uh, in great shape. And then pulls a muscle and uh, haven't seen him since. So he's definitely going to AAA as far as I can, can see. Which means it, uh, it's it's an open field for anybody. Flores, Gonzalez. But I'm not impressed with what Gonzalez has done. So, um, And now there's talk that the Yankees cut Adam Lind. There's talk about the Mets could possibly go out and sign him. Well you know they could have signed as i said duda and they knew what they had with duda and they let him go so um kind of a shot in the foot for the mets on this one but we'll see how they they figure something out uh second base is also open for discussion i know cabrera is going to get the job but look tucchini had a pretty good uh, spring is having a pretty good spring. Um, these guys could be up here quickly. We'll see. The Mets did make the first round of cuts from their camp, and Tim Tebow was among several players cut from the Mets major league camp and sent to the minor league camp. Right handed pitcher Kevin McGowan. Her son Bautista, Marcus Molina, Jamie Callahan, and right Corey Oswald were also cut from the big league squad. The Mets then cut seven more players on Wednesday, and they were right handed pitchers Tyler Bachelor and Chris Flexen, first baseman Peter Alonzo, catcher Patrick Mazica, uh, third baseman. David Thompson, outfielder Zach Borenstein, and Kevin Kamaski were all reassigned to the minor league camp. Uh, bachelor Alonzo Mazeko will likely open the season with Binghamton, with uh, Flexen, Thompson, Borenstein, and Kazmarski will likely open the season with Triple A Las Vegas. So, uh, some cuts are beginning to made. I think the Mets still have 44. Guys in camp got to get it down to 25 by the 29th, so uh, we'll see a lot more guys being cut. But that's that's the first, round, first two rounds of cuts so far that the uh, Mets have made. All right, let's take a break. I'm very excited about my guest this evening, and I hope that you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, so uh, let's take a break, and we'll be back with the guest right after this.
2: Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C70. My name is Daniel Shafton, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the internet today about their teams, but it always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website www.cardinal70.com or at baseballpodcast.net. Did you know that Baseball PhD can be heard on baseballtalkradio.com? Our shows rotate with other top baseball podcasts. Now, don't forget, that's BaseballTalkRadio.com. With us, we'll help you get a Ph.D. in life through baseball. With BaseballTalkRadio.com, you'll hear the rest of the excellent universe of baseball podcasts. 516-619-6341.
1: One, six, six, one, that is the comment To do things the old-fashioned way, send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings. And the Twitter handle is at metsmusings1.
2: With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack.
1: And I'm very excited about my guest tonight. He is the former relief pitcher for the New York Mets and with the Boston Red Sox and Milwaukee Brewers. He even played for the Seattle Pilots. And his name is Skip Lockwood, and he's got a brand new book out called Insight Pitch, My Life as a Major League Closer. And he's here tonight. Skip, thanks so much for coming on Mets Musings. It is wonderful, Gary.
3: Thank you for having me. The thrill to, to be uh, back this close to New York again. Um, I remember New York very, very kindly. We had wonderful years there. Uh, we had a house in Greenwich, and uh, Tom Siever was my ride to the ballpark. Um, we had we had friends. <clears throat> we just had a blast. I enjoyed playing at Shea Stadium. I, I pitched okay, and I got a chance to pitch in important games. <laughs> Um, I just love New York, and I, in many, many cases, I, I wished I had still stuck around. I I, uh, I miss it. I miss New York. I miss the people. Miss Broadway.
1: <laughs> and uh, you had a short but a very nice career here in New York, and uh, not a bad ride to the ballpark coming in with Tom Seaver. No, Tom was. You know, Tom was
3: very instrumental. Um, I think a lot of players that played with Tom will tell you the same. He was a guy that, you know, got up on your grill. Uh, and he was, he was a guy that w- uh, could teach. Uh, he was a, uh, a guy who was psychological, uh, thinking very clearly about the psychological components of the game. I think he was way ahead of his time in preparation, um, physically and emotionally, mentally for every game. He really left no stone unturned. You know, he went to the, to, the, to the ballpark every single day with a purpose in mind. Everything he did um, seemed like it was designed to, to help him pitch better, to help him think about pitching better. Um, he was really a mentor for me and very inspirational in many, many different ways. Um, I, en- I enjoyed being around him. All I had to do was listen sometimes he was confrontational sometimes with me. Um, he was a guy that I was a clear leader for me and a guy that I thought uh, influenced my career an awful lot.
1: Now, in, in your book, you, you speak about how you prepared for a game, and uh, you did a lot of, and, and I don't know if there was a lot of it going on at that time, but you did a lot of mental imaging. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and how you got into that?
3: yes um
1: the, the book
3: is an attempt to be authentic what I try to do is is write the book and I, I wrote every word of the book myself I try to, to speak as if um, I was taking you with me out on the mound it's with you and I are throwing the pitch you're inside the uniform you're gripping the ball you're you're feeling what it's like to be out there I try to be uh, honest um, and I tried to, you know, do it with a sense of humility, but I wanted people to just like you would ask somebody if, if you were at a bar someplace, you know, what is it like to go out on the mound? What, is it, what are they say in the dugout? So the book was an attempt to, to take you with me on my journey. Part of my journey was, was good. And part of it was great. The, the part that was good was in Milwaukee and in California, I pitched okay. Uh, starting pitcher for the Brewers, and, and I had some pretty good games, but I never, I never really turned it into something that I could count on, something that was repeatable. Mm-hmm. I really didn't know why I was pitching well, and then I started to uncover uh, ways to relax and visualize what was going to happen on the on the mound, and use that visualization as a tool. Um, very specific, uh, very detailed. I was very much in tune with how the movie was going to play of me pitching. And I would watch the movie of me pitching before I would ever go out and and pitch the game. It was something that I prepared every day. Uh, I prepared every batter. I prepared every pitch. Um, It was, I saw Tom do it. and I saw how he did it. And I tried to learn from him.
1: I tried to learn his techniques. And uh, quite interesting in the book, as you say, you do go into this and uh, do put us in the in the place of the mound and and the whole thing, and it's very fascinating the way you did that in the book. And uh, you know, I didn't realize that uh, you had actually made you were originally drafted and signed, I should say, because there was no draft in those days, but you were originally signed as an infielder and actually made it to the major leagues as an infielder.
3: Well, yeah, I did. I signed as a third baseman right out of high school. And it's hard to know know, what level you're at, whether you're high in or you would be high in the draft or not, because the draft was coming the next year. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, bird dogs and scouts and, you know, people from the front office would, would come and follow the game. And I had several teams were interested in me and my father, I think got a, a case of cigars or something like that. And, the, the Kansas city A's came in last. Um, they signed me, uh, to play infield. Um, Ed Charles, if you remember, was the third baseman, the glider, sure. he the sliders, <laughs> the glider, he was a great guy, great third baseman. And, and, uh, so he was you know, getting a little older, and they wanted somebody to come in and, and replace him eventually. So I got a chance to – and there was a bonus protection rule, if you remember back then. They were trying to get around some of the big bonuses. So there was a disincentive for teams to sign players and give them money. So they had to keep me with the, the big league ball club. So Catfish Hunter and Joe Rudy and uh, – Raleigh fingers and, and these guys that were signing had to stay with the big league ball club. So it wasn't as if I actually made the ball club as an infielder. They had to they had to keep me and protect me that way. I played a few games and I didn't play very well, but, um, but I did, I played in the big leagues at third base.
1: And then you, uh, made the transition to a pitcher, you struggled. Uh, I guess uh, the quote, uh, Clint Eastwood movie. You had a little trouble with the curve, and uh, <laughs> went <laughs> went back down and came back as a pitcher.
3: Yeah, you know, in the minor leagues, once once they get your number, <laughs> it, it doesn't take them very long to find <laughs> it out. Um, I uh, they they put a little wrinkle on the ball, and man, I was swinging for the fences. <laughs> I swung at the balls and took the strikes for a whole year in the minor leagues. Um, I it was clear to me that I had to do something. It was either go home or, or get something else in baseball to do. Charlie Finley was the guy that had signed me originally, and, and God bless Charlie. He gave me a chance to, to stay with the ball club and stay with the organization, go back to the minor leagues, and become a pitcher. Uh, Bill Posdell was the minor league pitching coach at the time, and Bill helped me. I had to learn a windup. I had to learn how to grip certain pitches. I always had a great arm, so throwing it hard wasn't a, wasn't a problem. But, you know, getting it somewhere near the mm-hmm. strike zone was. So I, I tried to learn to be disciplined and, and get a, a repeatable windup so that I could find a strike zone, and I did. And I I. Made myself into a pitcher. Um, I had God-given gifts, but um, you had to work hard. The minor leagues are no place for, you know, people to struggle. So uh, I was lucky. I was one of those lucky people that had a chance to come back, you know, from third base to becoming a big league pitcher and, and play for, you know, 12, 13
1: years. And of course, you mentioned Charlie uh, Finley. Charlie uh, was quite a colorful character that uh, probably people don't realize nowadays, the younger baseball fan. But uh, we can remember the uh, donkey and and uh, everything else that uh, Charlie uh, had with the Kansas City team, and eventually moved to Oakland. Yes, folks, they did play in Kansas City at one time, and uh, uh, and then you went on to uh, another quite uh how would you word it iconic uh colorful team and that was the Seattle pilots tell us briefly a little bit what about playing with the Seattle pilots in 1969.
3: And Seattle was a uh, uh, everybody journey doesn't you know the the teams <laughs> all had to protect certain members of their, their roster and the, the unprotected players went into a draft those players were drafted by Seattle and and then made up the Seattle team. So by definition was the teams that the other teams didn't the players that the other teams didn't want <laughs> very much uh ended up in Seattle. We had we had a very interesting team. Um and yeah, they were they were good guys, but they weren't, you know, name-ball players and and nobody came to the ball game to watch us at at six stadium. Um you could actually introduce yourself to everybody that was there <laughs> some nights. Um, I, when I arrived there, uh, it was in the transition from third base to pitching. And if you remember, Rich Rollins was the third base, uh, uh, third baseman for the, the team. So in spring training, I, you know, got my glove and I went down to third base. I started to shag some balls at third base. I thought I was a third baseman. When I got the contract in the mail, it didn't tell me what position I was going to play. It just. Gave me a, a salary. So I'm shagging balls with Rich Rollins on a third base. And and the pitching coach um, yells out to me, Lockwood, Lockwood, get out in the outfield with the rest of the pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Rich, huh, well, I'm a pitcher. <laughs> 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 and to this day, he probably thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> but, I uh, I really didn't know what position I was going to play with that team.
1: <laughs> now was that team as colorful as uh, Jim Bouton made it out to be in Ball Four, or was there some exaggeration there?
3: No, the Jim Bouton wrote a very tame book. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> okay, the, he left out the good stuff. There, <laughs> the thing that that he wrote were was he wrote people's names down. And that was the shocking part about it, right? You know, Names, people, and um, the team shenanigans were were far far more than that. They were <laughs> they were a crazy group of guys. Joe Schultz was the manager, and uh, <laughs> yeah. he was quite a guy himself.
1: <laughs> now, as a young man, I guess that was uh, kind of uh, uh, was it shocking in any way, or did you just kind of roll with the punches?
3: Yeah, I was there for a half a year. I wasn't there for, a, 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 you know, for a good long period of time. The big leagues are the big leagues. Yeah, you, know, you get a big league uh, uh, uniform. You're in the big leagues, you know. And I had a cool hat, and uh, <laughs> cool name. And, um, I just like being in the big leagues. I had a I had a chance to play with that team. It was, and then the whole the whole team got sold to Milwaukee. If you remember, mm-hmm. the last week of spring training. What was shocking was, as a as a Seattle pilot, we all thought we were going back to Seattle. The bus and the truck actually had left from spring training with all the gear on it, so all the bats and the balls and uh, the players' luggage and everything was on its way to Seattle. But the team was sold to, to Bud Selig mm-hmm. in Milwaukee, and so the team left and went to Milwaukee, and we didn't have any uniforms. <laughs> we didn't have any bats. We had no bases, uh, baseballs had no hats. We didn't have anything. know, the clubhouse guy actually took the name pilots off of the spring training uniform and, and superimposed, uh, brewers over that. So we could play our opening day, which was at home in Milwaukee. It was cold in April. Wow. And, uh, you could see, right? You could see the name Pilots underneath the name. He didn't get them <laughs> off real well. Was, yeah, that was a crazy team.
1: I'll tell you that that's uh, very interesting that, that uh, they'd go to that extent. But I guess they couldn't get anything made that quickly.
3: No, they didn't have time. Yeah, Yeah, it was it was a couple of weeks before we actually got a, a regular uniform. They were rushing it. I don't know who was making it, McGregor or somebody was rushing it through. They didn't know, yeah. and we didn't have any stuff. Nobody had any luggage or, or any of our clothes because that was all on the way <laughs> to Seattle at the time. So we actually had nothing. We didn't have reservations in the hotel. Wow. <laughs> it was, uh... but you know, Milwaukee was a wonderful place, and we I played there for almost five years, and and we lived there, and I I grew to love it. It was cold. But it was a safe, beautiful, lovely people. Um, made it, maybe drank a little bit too much beer, but <laughs> but that was a great place to play. I'm so happy. I think they deserved to be a National League team. It was uh, very much of a National League franchise.
1: Yes, yeah, so it always was with the Braves. And then, uh, of course, now they're back in the National League. They have been for a number of years. Um, but then you go from there. Uh, to uh, California, so from the the cold to the warm.
3: Right, I went out to uh, to play with the Angels. Um, this was Frank Robinson, uh, Frank Tanana, Nolan Ryan, Bobby Valentine. Uh, we had we had a team full of notable ballplayers. I still do my my don't remember why Frank Robinson wasn't a player manager for that team. He certainly should have been. Um, Nolan Ryan was on the team. I saw Nolan Ryan pitch a no-hitter. Um, this is the most incredible uh, pitcher that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, velocity was unbelievable. His curveball was so sharp and deadly. He um, was just unhittable. Um, he was he was a real tall, raw-boned, strong guy from Elvin, Texas, and he could throw some heat. But I tell you, he was just remarkable um, Frankie Tanana, uh, bill singer uh, Frank Robinson we had a we uh, we had a team full of you know great ball players mm-hmm. and nobody came to those ball games I mean it was in the same parking lot as Disney World we actually shared the same academy as the parking lot for Disney World <laughs> and it just wasn't an interesting place for people to come It ball so many distractions out there there's so many things yeah. other things to do <laughs> uh and we didn't we didn't drive very well and uh I, I played one year out there had to go back to the minor leagues for a brief stint and then ended up with new york
1: and uh you you came to new york and of course uh Really had had uh, uh, some success here, a lot of success in New York as a, a reliever and a closer, and you talk about that in the book, And but in your days, it was a little different. You pitched more than one inning.
3: Oh, no. You pitched <laughs> for sure. Uh, <laughs> you, when you got to the ballpark, if, if you only got away with pitching an inning or so, it was like a day off. <laughs> You know, we, we had great starters. We had Seaver and, and Kuzman and Matlack. Um, Craig Swan was there for a while. Uh, Pat Zachary. We had very, very good starting pitching. Bob Apodaca had the job as closer um, for the Mets. And, and he and I used a kind of committee, you know, was a, a closer by committee for a while. And we used to have to pitch, you know, three or four innings. And if you pitched three innings one day, it didn't mean you had the day off. You know, you might have to come back and pitch another inning. Um, but it was fun. You know, you want to pitch in games that are important. You, know, you want to get the ball when the the game is in your advantage. And even if it's a seventh inning, I'll take it and pitch nine outs. I don't mind. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really didn't mind pitching two or three innings. You know, today you've got the specialty and you've got the middle relievers and the setup guys and the, the closes are only going, you know, a short, you know, inning or so, and sometimes only to right or left-handed batters. And we didn't have that. <laughs> we, we just pitched, you know, Joe Torre didn't care whether it was a left-handed batter coming up that I was going to face. He wanted me on the mound. And that was, that was the thing that, that was so important to, to my career is there's a manager that wanted me out there and a team of guys that had confidence in me. So it made a big difference in my career, my psyche, and how I approached the game.
1: Now, do you think with all of this specialization today, is its it, is it um – uh, better for the game or you know it just seems like there's a lot more injuries and arm injuries and I wonder if it's uh, any of that is related to uh, all the specialization or because you guys threw a lot I mean like you said you throw three four innings and then come back the next night and throw maybe two or three and uh, uh, now they do one but they do everything it's at such force um, what's your feelings on that
3: well, the, the games today has changed. And so there's a couple of things about the way the game is played today that is different. <clears throat> first of all, they don't pitch to the strike zone mm-hmm. the way we did. You know, Seaver taught me to get strike one. Curveball, fastball, or something like that. You need to get strike one on on the batter. Um, today, when I watch the game or when I go to Finland, I, I see them play. Their first pitch is a changeup. The first pitch is a forkball. The first pitch a lot of times is unhittable. Um, they don't pitch strike one. They'll show you a fastball on the inside part of the plate for a ball. Or they'll show it to you away or high. Now they won't give it to you in the strike zone. They're going to come back with a forkball or a changeup, something that that they want you to hit. And so they play a zone defense against you, and they move the infielders back and forth. We never we never did that. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if the players um, have a, as strong an arms as we did, because we threw all the time. They're very specialized now, but these guys are big. They're strong. These guys, there's a house. You can't. You, they rip the uniforms so that they can get their arms into them. These guys are enormous, well-conditioned athletes, and and we weren't. I mean, we we did our jobs. I room with Mickey Lolich. You know Mickey was never accused of being a great athlete. He was a great pitcher, but he was he was out of shape, you know, but he could sink that fastball in on your hands. Um, today's pitchers are different. whether it's the cause of a lot of arm injuries, I don't know. Um, I'm suspicious that these kids threw too early, too much junk when they were in little league. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach kids don't throw anything that curves until you you can shave. You don't <laughs> try to throw a forkball or any of these things until you really know how to throw it because you're gonna you're gonna hurt yourself. So my s- suspicion is that the reason that there's so many injuries is not not the work that they get in the big leagues. It's the problems that arise from too much throwing curveballs and breaking pitches at too young an age.
1: And there's so much now with the travel teams and, and uh, that kind of thing that it wasn't around in uh, back in the day. And uh, I think that uh, I think you're right. I think that all adds up to it. There's no we used to break and uh, you know play football or play basketball and I'm sure you did the same kind of thing in your day. Um, and now it just seems that some of these guys are, are just uh, they're just playing baseball all year round.
3: Oh, for sure, and, and you would too. I mean, if you can get a, you know, five million dollar contract without <laughs> ever putting uniform on, and if, if your specialty, I was a closer. That pays good money today. You know, those those guys are getting ten and fifteen million dollars. Um, you, you it makes you focus. It makes you <laughs> work hard at trying to become a big leaguer if you can. It's certainly. I don't have my my kids i had four girls and a boy they played sports but they they weren't really into baseball mm-hmm. so but if my grandchildren come along i would certainly encourage them to to play as much baseball as they possibly could it's a great game and you know i don't think it's getting uh, any boring i see i think it's a great media game great great for television i i really enjoy watching it
1: yeah, I'm with you. I I am I'm, I'm not crazy about all these changes they're trying to make about pace of play and all that sort of thing, but um um we'll see where that all leads. Now, now the book uh is just full of great stories like this and I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it. I finished it in a day. It was so entertaining and uh, I hope everybody goes out and gets it, but um Just let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your impressions of uh, some of the Mets that you played with. Now, A couple of them, unfortunately, some of your teammates are in ill health right now. And uh, Ed Cranepool has some health issues and uh, Rusty Staub and Bud Harrelson just came out and said that he's suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, those three guys, if you will.
3: Well, you know, Cranepool... it was the elder statesman with the, with the Mets. Um, he was a guy that we all looked up to. Uh, he was a New Yorker. Uh, he knew everybody. Joe Torrey had an open clubhouse. So every, everybody was in the clubhouse. We had friends in the clubhouse, kids in the clubhouse, actors in the clubhouse, band members in the clubhouse. Crane was, had an entourage. You always had people with him. Um, I thought he was the glue that, that held the team together. He was uh, uh, a guy that would, would come to you and help you. He was a leader. Um, he, he was a guy that, that quietly would, would come and say to you something in, in, in the outfield about how you, got, how you were pitching or something. Um, he had a deal with Joe Torre that I thought was exceptional. Joe said to, to Eddie Cranepool, I can't start you every day, but what I can guarantee you is I can guarantee that you're going to get the bat in your hand when there's a runner on, on base and we need to run in, in, in the eighth and ninth inning. You're going to get a chance to, to hit in an important situation. And that made a lot of difference to, to Cranepool because he was always in the game. He was always there. He wasn't grumpy. Uh, he was a great leader. And I, I take my hat off to Joe Torre for, for, for helping him, you know, find his role as a pinch hitter, um, you know, with the Mets. Um, Staub was a different kettle of fish. Rusty Staub, the Gras Rouge, was, was elegant, um, confident, um, purposeful. Um, everything that, that Rusty did um w- w- looked like a, b- a ballet dancer sometimes his you know his socks were high the uniform was perfect mm-hmm. he w- he was a guy that uh was he showed you how to play he, he he did it so you could you could see the right way to to play uh very precise in in all of his actions and as you as you know was very philanthropic mm-hmm. after his days were over with the New York police and and other things that he, his charities. Um, I think both of those guys have kidney failure. Um, Rusty, I think, is is bad mm-hmm. uh, in the hospital uh, on dialysis. I think that Eddie Craneful, the last I heard, he was waiting for a transplant or something like that. I, I don't know which one, who, who's got the worst, the worst case of it here, but here's two um, people that I know and love that, you know, having having trouble with with one particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as far as Harrelson goes, I just found out in spring training that he, he declared that he has some kind of Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddy was an interesting guy. Buddy, you know, when the having Buddy in the infield was was great because he always wanted the ball. I remember w- whenever he came to the mound. It was never to talk about hitters or anything like that. He, he was there to try to see how I could throw a pitch on the inside part of the plate, so, so he could bail me out somehow by getting a ground <laughs> ball double play. He was always a guy that was a, call him a gamer. You know, he wanted the ball. He, he wanted to play important games. Um, he he was an inspiration. We became close friends. Uh, real good guy. I, I I'm. We're so sorry to see that he's not feeling
2: well.
1: Yeah, I, I've had the pleasure to meet uh, uh, Buddy Harrelson and, and Ed Cranepool just in passing, you know, but they they were very nice guys and uh, really ashamed to hear that. And of course, you know, uh, I watched them uh, growing up and, and as a young man, and it's sad to uh, to see this uh, happening now, but um, I guess it happens to all of us, and that's the aging process.
3: Well. Wow. I'm not buying into that analysis uh, Cranepool, you know the interesting about Cranepool that people don't know is we had a kangaroo court with the Mets. and um it was a serious deal. you know, a hundred dollars for mm-hmm. for wearing the uniform improperly or or not bunning a guy over or um, embarrassing the ball club, you know with with some kind of mistake was. Was a, a, a serious amount of money. I got fined for walking off the mound with only two outs one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, yeah, it was a very serious kangaroo court, and uh, occasionally visited by by Willie Mace who uh, who was hilarious and uh, he was was a funny guy. That he was a coach uh, on, on the uh, on the sign-up sheet, but <laughs> i don't know whether... He did much coaching, but he was a great person. Right?
1: <laughs> well, you really uh, had uh, played with or played against some of the biggest stars in baseball, I mean, uh, you mentioned a bunch of them, Catfish Hunter and Willie Mays and, and uh, uh, Rusty, of course, and um, in your book, you talk about Hank Aaron and and, uh, and those guys, and uh, you have really had a very uh, terrific career, and uh, uh, why, why the book and why at this point?
3: Um, I had the time to write it. I've I've been working, doing different things all my life, and um, I had a chance. I was very motivated to write down some of the stories that I thought were were funny and some of the stories I thought were were more serious. Um, The way I thought about this book was I wanted to show people uh, a game in slow motion. I wanted to, to show them baseball like inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what a player thinks about. This is how a player goes about it. The player doesn't pitch one inning a night or, or start one, one day a week. The player is always a pitcher. You wake up in the morning, you go to lunch, you go to, you go to dinner, you, you're always thinking about that pitcher or, or a hitter about swinging at, at that ball. It's not a, a, a one-time-a-day thing. It's something that you live and you become. You breathe it. it. If I threw a pitch at 8 o'clock at night at Shea Stadium, I bet you I threw that pitch 10,000 times that day before I ever got to the stadium. It was something that you practice. It became real. Um, I wanted the book to be a book that tells stories, just like if you sat down to a, at a bar with me, that, that we could talk about baseball. I could take you with me. I could I could bring you out there. People ask me, what is it like to go out there? This is what it's like. The book tells you what it's like to be on the field.
1: And it certainly does. And and as like I said, it has tons of great stories. It's it's really a a, a fun read. It's a very interesting book. I think you did a great job with it, Skip. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. It was really a pleasure having you on and talking to you about your career.
3: Gary, yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
1: Um, stay out of the snow. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we'll try to do that. <laughs> 516 619 six, 6341. That is the comment voicemail hotline. If you'd like to be a part of the show and uh, drop us a line, leave us a comment or a voicemail question, anything at all call that number 516-619-6341 or go to metsmusings.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen and that's a speak pipe and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com the facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings and the Twitter handle is at MetsMusings1 And uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show Check out our Patreon page Check out the campaign at Patreon.com Slash MetsMusings
2: everyone about our fourth annual group outing to a New York Mets game for the Boardwalk Battalion as well as the listeners of Mets Musings with Gary Mack. On Wednesday April 18th of this year we will be we will be attending a New York Mets game versus the Washington Nationals. Everyone who buys a ticket through me and Gary is more than able to help out if you need to get in contact Everyone buying a ticket will receive a replica Mike Piazza jersey, as well as an adjustable New York Mets hat. The Mike Piazza jersey this year is designed in blue, like the Mets' current home alternate jerseys. The jerseys will run as big as size 2 xl To purchase tickets, go to paypal.me slash boardwalk battalion 30, and each ticket is $30. And if you need any help with the link, contact Gary because he will have a copy of it. From now until the opening day on March 29th, tickets are only $30. After opening day and until April 12th, the purchasing deadline, tickets will be $33. And after that day, the tickets will go up to $36. So get your tickets early to get a great discounted price. If you have any questions about this event, feel free to contact Gary and he will answer whatever questions he can, or he will forward them to me and then get back to you. And uh, now that I'm done, I'm sure Gary will tell you how great these events have been because he has come. He has come before. He is, I believe, a three P defender. And I know Gary's already paid up. So if he's paid up, you got to pay up also if you want to join us. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at bkcowbellguy. Same for Instagram, at BK Cowboy Guy, or you can go to the Meth Musings Facebook group, which I'm in, and post a question, and I will make sure to answer it. And I hope to see you at the game on April 18th.
1: And I hope to see you as well at the game on April 18th. Uh... It's a good game. Washington Nationals, first time the Nationals are going to be in town, I guess. I didn't look at the whole schedule, I would imagine, that early in the season. But uh, always a good uh, good time hanging out with the Boardwalk Battalion boys in Brooklyn. And uh, I hope you all will consider coming. It's it's really a lot of fun and uh uh, the jerseys are, are nice, and the hats are nice, and and it's a good deal for $30. bucks. i am telling you, you can't beat it, so uh, check it out anywhere on the web. Wow, we're really running late tonight, Uh long show due to everything going on with the uh, big interview, but I hope you enjoyed that interview with Skip Lockwood. It was a real pleasure for me to talk to him, and I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, go out and buy the book. It's, it's really a, a fun read. It's really a good read. And we're going to have some more authors on uh, as we get uh, um, closer to their release dates of their books. There's a couple of more Mets books coming out, at least three that I know of, um, that deal with the Mets in some sort of way. And uh, hopefully we'll have the authors on and maybe a few surprises. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Okay, so that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, I want you to uh, tune in next week. Go out and buy Skip Lockwood's book. Tune in next week for another edition of Mets Musings. And until then, remember, keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets.